The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. So if you're wondering about this stylish new accessory I have <laughs> on my right foot, <clears throat> uh, about two weeks ago, I stepped off a curb into a storm drain and landed wrong on my right foot. And I was thinking, you know, I, I, um, <clears throat> I turned 36 this year. So I think this is my official welcome into the world of boring midlife injuries. <laughs> That's how I'm choosing to look at it. I hear there's more to come. So maybe some of you have had an experience like this. Um, a conversation that ends up turning the way you were thinking about something on its side. Early on in seminary, when I was studying for the ministry, I had a conversation like that. It was a conversation about the concept of what we're doing here today, what some people call this Sunday morning service, worship. What does that mean, worship? The school that I went to for my ministry degree was in many ways kind of a Unitarian Universalist heaven. It wasn't a UU school exclusively. Now, some of you know that our tradition here comes out of sort of a far, far edge extension of progressive Christianity. But out of that, we have come to a sort of whole different way of thinking about spirituality that welcomes wisdom from all faith traditions, that welcomes wisdom, in fact, even from secular traditions like literature or poetry. To paraphrase Walt Whitman, who says this pretty well, it's not that we say your scriptures are not holy. They are. But we say that they came from you, and they come from you still. Spiritual wisdom is not something long ago and far away. It's not only in the old holy books. It is coming from us still. And so... A big part of why I chose this school to study for ministry is because it was a multi-religious school. There are a few of those out there. And so there were UUs like me, but there were also Catholics that I studied with and Mormons and Jews. There were Muslim students there. There were a few Sikh students. There were Buddhist students, Hindu students, every flavor of the Protestant rainbow that you can think of. There were even Wiccan and pagan students. I had a friend in seminary who liked to joke that she was a PK which is what a lot of Christians call a preacher's kid, but she meant a priestess's kid. Her mother was a pagan high priestess in Kentucky. <laughs> so in that environment, as you can imagine, when we got together for our weekly service as a school, we would often ask, what are we worshiping? What does this word mean if we're making space for all these different beliefs in our community when we gather? Where is this worship going? In what direction? And it was a debate we would bring up really whenever we wanted to avoid studying, right? We just kind of chew the fat on this one. And I heard the best answer finally one day, the kind of answer that totally changed the course of how I thought about this question from my friend Dave. We were sitting around after a preaching class, and the old conversation came up, and somebody threw it out there. So what is this thing we're worshiping anyway? What are we worshiping anyway? And Dave, maybe sick of this conversation, said, 
What aren't we? What aren't we worshiping? What aren't we? You know, we've all been given this life. We're all here. Things happen, of course, all the time that we are not glad for. Mundane things like ice storms and broken feet. Earth-shattering things like untimely death and trauma. We don't always gather when we gather even as a community to worship. Sometimes we gather to heal, to mend what's broken. Sometimes we gather here to name a better vision for this world like Dr. King did decades ago. Or like many of our folks did with our Justice Works team yesterday at the Women's March. We don't always gather to worship, but we do that most regularly. On the same day and time every week, no matter what else is going on in our lives or in the world. And here we are. So what are we worshiping? I could paraphrase another UU preacher here who said, Religion is our response to the two truths about being human, the two truths that are true for absolutely everyone who's ever lived on this planet, that we are alive and we are going to die. Those are the only universals about our experience. And there's something about those two truths that has always throughout history called us together in communities like this one to respond somehow to the gift of this life that we have and to wrestle with that question, that tension between what are we worshiping and what aren't we worshiping? There may be no one that I can think of who embodies that question and that tension more than this woman behind me who we lost this week at the age of 83, the poet Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver has been close to this community's heart for a while. Every November, we host a service where we invite people from across the ages, the lifespan, different decades of life to answer the question at the end of her poem, The Summer Day. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Mary was a great poet. That's an understatement. She wrote so many words about mortality, reflecting on mortality and death from all angles while also worshiping every last inch of this world down to the grasshopper eating sugar in her hand. Who I can think of, there's nobody who was more comfortable Reflecting on that tension between the loss of everything and the beauty of everything. She reflected so often on how to live her life in her poetry, knowing that it would not last forever. And in the process of doing that, she so gently drew our attention back in the way that the best spiritual teachers always do to what's here in this moment drew our attention back to recognizing that the breath we take in in this moment represents the only moment we have for sure. 
the only life that we have to live. And we don't all live as poets all the time. And we can't all notice that truth all the time. The impact of really feeling that is bracing when it happens, right? It can be scary. I think that's why we do a lot of different things in our lives to avoid feeling and remembering that truth of our mortality from day to day. That's probably a grace that we've adapted to not think about that all the time. But I think sometimes about the moments that it's come up for me in my last few years, now that I drive a lot, which I never used to living in the city, I come out here to Wellsprings all the time. I drive on the Schuylkill Expressway or on 95 or on the Blue Route. And I have passed accidents that were far too close for comfort more than once. Just a few minutes behind or a few minutes ahead of something that looks like it changed someone's life one way or another. It's happened enough that there are three or four specific ones that I remember really clearly. And the one that sticks most in my mind Some morning, who knows when, driving out here to Wellsprings. I live in South Philadelphia, so I was getting onto the highway at 95 South. And at the end of that on-ramp, just to the right of me, I passed a car. The first responders had just gotten there, had just closed the doors on their vehicle. And as I drove past, they were literally taking out crowbars to pry open the driver's side door of a smoking car. And I could see an unconscious woman slumped over in the front seat. As I drove past, thinking about the day ahead, right? Moments before going through my to-do list, drinking my latte, listening to Weezer on the radio, thinking about none of this, the most mundane of possible mornings and moments, interrupted out of nowhere by the sights and the sounds and the smells of a moment where everything was changing for someone else and probably for a lot of people who loved her. A reminder that it could all change just like that for me or for you or for any of us. That one day, one way or another, it will change for us all. I thank Carol Breslin, our Youth Spirit Coordinator, for this reminder. She shared earlier this month an article written on the 10th anniversary of this moment, something we might all remember from when it happened when Flight 1549 came down into the Hudson River. They called it the miracle on the Hudson that day. It was a miracle. After they lost engine power, thanks to Captain Sully Sullenberger, who I think they made a movie about, right? He deserves it. There were no fatalities, only minor injuries. Everyone survived this. When Carol shared it, she brought it up in our staff team meeting, actually, earlier this week. She was remarking on something amazing she learned, that nearly half of the 150 survivors of this crash changed their jobs after this experience. Yeah. And some, of course, had other stories. They had stories about... Marriages or relationships that changed, priorities that shifted, decisions to move or to end or start something new. And sometimes it is like that. 
You might have a moment in your life, a big moment. I don't think any of you survived a plane crash, so come talk to me afterwards if you did. But some big moment that seemed to change everything, that gives us totally new eyes for seeing the whole world. But those are not the typical thing. Those don't happen every day. Most days, probably 99.9% of the days in our lives, it is much easier for us to just kind of put one foot in front of the other, to sleep right on through. In our message series for this new year, what we set our hearts on, this is part of the question that we're talking about. It's in this time of year, sometimes especially, that the, the conversation is out there about reinventing ourselves. Right? New year, new you, that whole thing. It kind of rises up around us once a year for some reason. We hear it buzzing in the background. And it is encouraging us to engage that magical thinking. Right? Maybe if I change something, it'll change everything. Maybe if I finally get to inbox zero on my emails... I'll get that promotion. Maybe if I finally find the right home organizing method, I will be at peace in my house. If I get the right budget down, if I get the right diet, if I find the right partner, maybe that will change everything. Poets who are, in many ways, I think the prophets and the scripture writers of our day, they don't often talk about change like that. They usually talk about how transformation is slow, how a change of heart needs time to work within us. There's another great poet, John O'Donohue. He talks about this in one of my probably top ten favorite poems of all time. It's called For a New Beginning. You may have heard it before. I'll just read a little bit of it. In the -the out-of-the-way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time, it has watched your desire feeling the emptiness growing inside of you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered, heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? But then the delight when your courage kindled, and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plentitude opening before you, though your destination is not yet clear. You can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is at one with your life's desire. It almost sounds like a pregnancy, right? Like something forming inside of you that will be born one day, but then who knows what, right? That will have a life of its own. 
The older I get, the more I notice that this is more how transformation feels for me. It's actually not a finish line. It's an uncertainty. It feels more like something open-ended than something that hits me all at once and says, it's done. I even find myself starting to say that changes I have made are more of a new habit I have rather than saying that I am new or I am different. With time and life experience, I've certainly got a better appreciation for how long the distance can be between saying, I would like to change something and I have changed something, right? I don't know if you're anything like me, but I used to think that that was an instantaneous process. I would like to change this and now I will, right? Uh, I'm, I'm more aware that now a best case scenario is more like a one to three year range between those two things. That's if you're like going to therapy and really working on it, right? And paying attention. And so that, for me, is where I found that the love makes a difference. If we set our hearts on something for the love of it, rather than for the shame or the fear or the expectations of others, if we set our hearts on something for the love of it, that can sustain us. We can look at ourselves And wonder not what is there to love about me, about this. We can open to that idea of what isn't there to love. We need that to stick with it for one to three years or five or ten or a lifetime. Holding all of ourselves and our world, even the imperfect and painful parts, up as worthy worthy of love and care and compassion and worthy of loving it all into how good we dream it might be. You might have seen this woman's photo also this week in the news or on the Internet. Go Google her gymnastics floor routine if you haven't seen it. It's a hoot. Her name is Caitlin Ohashi. She grew up as a competitive gymnast on the Olympic track. She is incredibly talented and gifted, and she had her heart set on doing this, living out her gift, doing this beautiful physical art form that she was so talented at. This week, a floor routine of hers went viral, which is why she is all over the Internet these days. But for those who followed her story before this, there was an even deeper beauty in seeing her splashed all over the news doing her thing with such joy, not at an Olympic event or trial, but for the team at UCLA, where she is now a college student. You see, earlier this year, Caitlin shared her story of her journey with a a newspaper called the Players Tribune that many people read also. And it was a story of disappointing people, failure, disappointing her coaches and her teammates, and her fans, when she decided to step away from Olympic training, when she decided that that was not the life that she wanted. She'd endured injuries over the years. She'd recognized a healthy obsession with food, an unhealthy, sorry, obsession with food that had arisen for her. She hated being on these ultra-competitive teams where the coaches told the young women not to cheer for each other, not to support each other, because those other women are your competition, which was true. It wasn't what she wanted. 
And eventually she decided to be done with it because she recognized she'd lost the love for what she was working towards. She not only lost the love, but it was actually starting to hurt her, her body and her heart. It was destroying this thing that had been such a gift in her life. Like Reverend Ken said last week in our service, it takes a lot of courage to level down when we are expected to level up. But it is our faith here that teaches us the love and blessedness that is with us since birth doesn't go away because we fail or because we disappoint each other. That love is always with us. And maybe what we are craving the most is not the change that makes us worthy of that love, but the courage to receive that love no matter how good we feel about ourselves. No matter how well we are performing or living up to our ideals. Maybe letting love in at those low points is exactly where we start to let a new beginning form. Mary Oliver was famously cranky about giving interviews. She was also famously cranky. But she really hated, you know, she didn't promote her books. She didn't go on tour. She did an interview with Krista Tippett on On Being a couple years ago that you can listen to online. And she spoke in that interview, as she has vaguely at other times, of a difficult childhood, of years that she spent feeling disconnected from other people, lonely decades, and her own slow growth over time towards meaningful connections and relationships. Mary Oliver, for all her gifts, was not a perfect person with a perfect life. But she always credited for saving her life her ability to follow what her heart longed for. Slowly, her heart longing for the woods and the shore, the animals, nature. It was following that genuine longing of her heart that gradually saved her from her sorrows. It's right there in one of her most famous poems, in Wild Geese, right? You do not have to be good. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. A few years ago, Mary wrote a poem about the experience of being diagnosed with lung cancer. She called it the fourth sign of the zodiac. Get it? Anybody? Cancer? Yeah. I didn't even get it until I read that. It's a poem that is honest to the mix of emotions that she felt. All the imperfect emotions, the anger, the smallness, the helplessness, and also the incredible feeling of connection and aliveness that she saw as well when she pondered her own death. She wrote, the question is, what will it be like after the last day? Will I float into the sky Or will I fray within the earth or a river, remembering nothing? How desperate I would be 
if I couldn't remember the sun rising, if I couldn't remember trees and rivers, if I couldn't remember, beloved, even your beloved name. I know you never intended to be in this world, but you're in it all the same. So why not get started immediately belonging to it? There is so much to admire and to weep over. May we worship it all as much as we can. And may we trust our hearts to follow what they long for. In the great tradition of teachers like Mary, may we love this world around us and each other as ourselves. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Will you pray with me? God of the imperfect days, of the cloudy, foggy, frozen rain, and of the rainbow and the sunlight and the butterfly, May we make enough space in our lives to let it be here, to let what we feel be what we feel, and to never forget that all of us walk through this life imperfectly, that there is nothing so great that it could disconnect us from each other, from some connection with some other part of this world, and from the greatest connection of all, with something beyond what we see and know. May we trust that that source of love and light is with us. For the prayers I've spoken and for the prayers each of these people carries on their hearts today, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.